0: Um, And I hope you got a Bible. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 today. Uh, Maybe you saw that coming because we closed there last week. Um, So our game plan for the next month and a half um, as we build up to Easter is we're going to let Luke introduce us to in detail and describe the story of Jesus to us. Now, I know what you're saying. I know who Jesus is, Justin, so I don't need to be introduced. Well, maybe it would be good for us to go back and see through the eyes of the original uh, group who uh, met him for the first time. And maybe it would be good for us to see through the eyes of those who have not yet met Jesus so that we might better understand um, those around us, those that we often don't know how to relate to who haven't yet. No, uh, met Jesus and, and don't know him like we know him. So I hope over the next month or so that as we kind of go back to ground zero, and as we kind of assume the role of these original followers, even before they were followers, these original eyewitnesses to the events that we know like the back of our hand, that we know so well and we can quote and talk about and, and sing about, but to go back to a world when it wasn't normal and when it was brand Knew. So if you weren't here for the introduction, uh, we talked about how Luke, Luke, who was a physician, uh, was a follower of Jesus. He became a, a Christian under the teaching and preaching of the Apostle Paul. He became a companion of Paul. And, and Luke went from being just an interested uh, uh, you know, follower to an investigating reporter um, and, and was inspired to write what we have in our hands as a part of the Bible. He was inspired to write a two-volume epic about Jesus and His church with the thesis being how it took the world by storm and the storm hasn't let up since. And that's a good thing. Uh, Luke spent time on the ground in Judea uh, interviewing and forming relationship with the most key and important people surrounding Jesus and his movement, those that uh, knew him since he was a baby, those that met him as a, when he was an adult and as a teacher. We don't even know if Luke's plan was to go to Jerusalem and start re- interviewing people, but that's what happened when he went to the big festival with Paul in 57 A.D., We know uh, that he got immersed in the local church. He met the elders and the eyewitnesses and the original followers of Jesus. And of course, Paul, we talked about, Paul was imprisoned. He was arrested for preaching. He he was kind of set up by some of the Jewish people that were jealous and kind of angry at him that he left their religion for for Christianity. Paul was set up, was arrested, was imprisoned, and Luke found himself on an extended sabbatical uh, from his practice back in Greece. He found himself kind of stuck there, injured, Jerusalem, and he began to see Christianity through the eyes of those that were personally impacted by Jesus some 30, 40 years before, and he spent about three years compelled to chase after more and more of the backstory that we have in front of us recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Now, remember, Paul, arrested in prison, he stood trial because the leaders of Judea, the leaders of the area, uh, their parents and their grandparents and their predecessors, the people whose whose office they had stepped into, they all knew Jesus personally and they were so perplexed um, at how their dads and their granddads and how their predecessors had put Jesus to death, yet his movement would not die and it seemed as if he was still alive and still in control and they could not understand it. It seemed as if Jesus' death was all a part of His plan. It seemed as if the church was off and running as good as ever. Even though they thought Jesus was dead, they couldn't help but wonder, is He still alive? So Paul was on trial there, in front of these men, these leaders, these kings, these politicians who wanted to know more about Jesus. And Luke was in the audience, uh, a part of this extended, drawn-out court process. And I believe, we, we, we kind of came to the conclusion that the words of Paul... Uh, In the undying interest and the appetite and desire to know more about Jesus and his accuser's hearts, that we believe that's what inspired Luke to put all that he had learned down in words and dig even deeper. And I want to remind you something that we closed with last time. I want to show you a little piece of Paul's argument when he was in court that day that Luke took notes from, that Luke recorded for us in the book that we call Acts, I want you to hear what Paul said as he kind of closed his argument against, in front of those politicians, in front of those accusers. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true. In rational words. Notice, Paul was not on trial that day saying, y'all, you just got to believe. I I know you can't explain it. I know you can't prove it. But you just got to believe. Paul believed what he was preaching could be proven. He believed that what he he was preaching could be fact-checked. And of course, Luke had spent years doing just that. And Paul said, I stand to you on truth and on reason. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. This was done in your own country before your own eyes. I want to talk about this because this is really the place that Luke brings his gospel to us from. I think we need to have a conversation about the ideas of what is truth and what is reason, and these concepts of faith. In belief. Now, stepping away from Christianity and anything religious, would you all agree that in every aspect of life, we believe you make you you place faith in things or people based on evidence, right? Uh, Andy Stanley says, we believe based on confidence in the person who has given us the information. That we make decisions as to where to put our faith, as to where to put our money, as to where to put our investments, as to where to live our lives. We make those decisions based on how we feel the evidence and the proof is behind whatever we're being sold or whatever we're being uh, talked about. So it's not far-fetched, right? We determine what we watch, what we listen to, where we go to the doctor, what, what special we consult based on the fact that we believe they have evidence, they have proof, they have good reason behind whatever they're trying to pitch to us. So Paul appealed based on truth and reason, having a certainty pertaining to the thing he was preaching, the person he was preaching about. It's from the place of certainty that Luke set out to write his gospel having retraced the steps of Jesus, sitting down with the eyewitnesses seeing Jesus through their eyes. And I think that the confidence Paul preached with, the confidence that those Luke interviewed had, inspired Luke to write this story, to write this gospel. So when we read Luke's account, we can have certainty, as he tells us in his prologue, that what we're reading actually took place. Now, with that being said, let's read Luke 1, 1 through 4, as Luke kind of sells us on the idea of why we should read more. He addresses a a particular person, a friend of his, maybe a patron, but I think he's addressing all of us. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word, delivering them to us, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, from the very beginning, to write to you, I love this, an orderly account, O excellent Theophilus. And look at verse 4 and underline this, highlight this verse, if you will, that you may know the certainty that you may have absolute, full assurance of those things in which you were instructed or of what you have heard about. You know what Luke's trying to tell us? That we can trust in, not just hope for, what he's about to tell us. That we don't have to just hope this is true or have this kind of Sunday school-like faith. Well, I've heard about it, so I guess it's true. And if I don't believe it, I just have to try harder. This isn't based on hope so. This is based on, hey, it actually happened so we can trust in this truth. This is bigger and better than just believe more. This isn't stepping out on nothing, thin air, Listen we don't appeal. Luke doesn't appeal to us based on an uncertain hope, but rather with certain faith, a confident trust. Luke's gospel, I want us to understand this, is proof. And you say, "Well, how do you know, Justin?" Because he talked to eyewitnesses. He experienced it himself, of course, but he experienced what he experienced could be traced back to the source, the source being the life of Jesus Christ, of Jesus. Of Nazareth. So, the word that we have in front of us, particularly Luke's gospel for our study, the word is proof. The word is the story because it's his story and it's literally history. Again, this is so big in terms of spreading the gospel because we spread not just a, religious, a list of religious commandments and some legends that are written about things that may or may not be true or may or may not matter if they're true. We are spreading something that actually happened. And here's the best part. Those that actually saw it, wrote about it, and talked about it. And we have proof. Isn't that what Luke tells us in verse 4? Especially you can have the certainty, the assurance now, similarly, I'll show you this before we move on. John tells us the, very, the same in a little different way. Um, in his version of the story, except he puts it at the end of his story, listen to what John says uh, when he, about why he wrote about the story of Jesus and why he believes the story of Jesus can change your life. He wrote this at the end of his gospel. These are written so that so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believe, by believing, you may have life, have life in His name. So why is John convinced that you will believe? Because it was written. It was written so that... John's not just saying, Hey, Jesus, the Son of God, you should believe it. If you don't believe it, try harder. He's saying, Hey, you can read this story this actually happen you can put your confidence in what I'm saying because I saw it with my own eyes so take it from John take it from Paul take it from Luke the word appeals to us from a place of truth so we don't have to just hope that Jesus was Messiah but we can trust in Jesus the Messiah and here's something else I'll say because I think this drives it home even more a little bit of a spoiler alert, but most of you know where this is going. Would you believe that what Luke tells us the disciples' initial reactions were when they first heard that Jesus had risen from the dead? Do you, would you believe how they reacted? Because Luke included it in the story. And if, if this was made up, Luke would have skipped this part. If, this, if they were really trying to sell the world on something they didn't really know would take off, they would have left this part out because it doesn't really help the story. But this is what Luke tells us that Peter and John and James and all of them thought when they heard the report that Jesus came back to life. These words seemed to them like an idle tale, and they did not. They did not. They did not believe. I love that Luke includes that story, though. He could have easily left it out. But guess what changed their mind, according to Luke? They saw him with their own eyes. And then Jesus said, okay, here's the way this works from now on. I have resurrected, clearly. I'm going to heaven, but the Spirit that raised me from the dead, the Holy Spirit, God Almighty in spirit form, He is coming to live in your hearts. And as we'll find out, they believed in God's Spirit, but they didn't believe it in in this capacity. This was brand new for them. I know y'all are bummed out that I'm not going to be right beside you, sun up to sun down, but you know what's better than right beside you? Within is greater than with. And I know y'all love me being with you, but just wait until I am within when I'm living in your heart. And you know what? That's the promise of Christianity. If this is brand new for you and you're thinking, I don't know about this, Justin. You, know, you were trying to appeal to me based on truth and reason and now you're telling me that God actually can live in my heart? Absolutely. And we'll get to why I believe that you can believe even that if that's hard for you to understand. The Apostle Paul says this about Christians. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Who? You who believe. It was in this power and this confidence of the experience that they went and began preaching the name of Jesus. That He had risen from the dead. That He indeed was the Messiah. It was the confidence in His resurrection that made them suddenly turn back to everything He would ever did and ever said and realize wow, all of this has been validated. All of this has been authenticated. So they began preaching and along the way, Paul got saved. And then Luke got saved. And of course, Luke joined the team of preachers that took the gospel to the whole world. And Luke believed that if this message was preserved and preached for ages to come, its power would be shared and received for ages to come. And of course, that was God's intent behind the inspiration the whole time, as he intended to use this story to win the hearts of people long past the first century. And indeed, he was right. So, as we read Luke's gospel, we're going to pay close attention to how Luke points to these realities of a sovereign father, a resurrected Savior, and a powerful spirit. And all this is going to come full circle, I believe, at the end of our time. So, here's what I love about Luke's gospel. is that his story begins where the Old Testament ends. And even if you don't know anything about the Old Testament, you'll catch up pretty quickly because basically the Old Testament idea of God in religion was really similar to the whole world idea of God religion. And I'm sure that Luke, a student of Israel's history, wanting to know more about the Jewish God, presenting this very much Jewish God to a world that did not know the Jewish context, Luke must have thought, you know, must have asked those early believers, you know, what convinced you to walk away from all of your Old Testament traditions, from all of your family heritage? What convinced you to turn away from that and turn to Jesus? How? Why? What changed? because maybe that'll help convey why the outside world should tune in. I'm sure he asked them, tell me what it was like before Jesus as he began to piece together the story of how the Jewish God became the universal God. And unlike the other gospel writers, Luke chooses to start his story well before Jesus was born because it gives us the Jewish context for Christianity. Provides a powerful contrast between all religion... In Christianity. I think that's what Luke wants us to get out of the box here in chapter 1. It's not so much the details of Jesus' immediate backstory, but the broad implications of a God who is not confined to one space, a God who is personal and who can do the impossible. We're going to see all these come to life as they reflect the different aspects of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And if you think about it, Luke begins his story in the most religious of places, the Jewish temple. Any religious person of the ancient world could identify with a temple where God was supposed to live. He introduces to us two very religious people. In a very religious place, abiding by all the rules, but all of their religion wasn't doing anything for them. And maybe you identify with that. I'm sure the ancient world did. Maybe you identify with it. Maybe that resonates with you. You're trying to be religious. You're doing the religious stuff at the religious places, following all the religious rules, but nowhere you're getting nowhere and nothing's happening. Luke drops us in the life of two very religious people who weren't getting anywhere. Luke 5 continues the story, or actually begins the story proper. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, that's going to be important for us, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So here's our two people, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. So we have these words, righteous and blameless, walking in the commandments. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. Here's why that's important. Because the older you got, the closer death was approaching. And nobody could stop death. Not even God. Verse 8, so it was that while he was serving as a priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot, or they drew straws, failed to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. This was a daily tradition, and Zacharias was one of the few people that had continued to hold this tradition up. Religion had promised the Jews for ages. If you do this, and if you do that, if you strictly adhere to, and do not waver, if you, if you, if you obey, then God is obligated to bless. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've grown up in that kind of environment. That if you do, if you do X, Y, and Z, then of course God will do A, B, and C. Israel had a covenant with God, and it was a sweet deal. Uh, It was too good to be true almost. He gave them cities they did not build, houses they did not fill, wells they did not dig, gardens that they did not plant. He brought them into the land of milk and honey, but He made a covenant with them. And the covenant went something like this. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways, by fearing Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. And beware, lest you forget. Because the God who gave it to you can take it back from you. If you don't, He won't. Over and over again, you'll find this warning, almost as if Moses was writing as if he had seen the future and knew what was going to happen. The people could never bear the weight of the law. They realized it was impossible to overcome the shortcomings of their flesh. Try as they might, they never could bear the weight. This was never a surprise to God, though. If you read the whole story, it was, it's why He always would send a deliverer. He always promised a Savior who would pick up the slack when they indeed forgot. <laughs> Even before the law was given, the Hebrews knew to hope in a deliverer from God because they could not endure alone. And once again, once and over and over again, God sent deliverers to his people to save them, to rescue them, sometimes from themselves, sometimes from their enemies, sometimes from just a cruel, unfortunate circumstances that come about in an unjust world. But the funny thing about those deliverers. If you read the Old Testament, even with deliverers such as Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David, hope always faded because they always died. Delivery was only as was only as present as these deliverers were alive all the major arcs uh, of the redemption of the Old Testament end with the deliverer dying. And it's almost like when you read the next chapter or you read the next book, you think this is like a sequel to a movie that didn't need to happen. I mean, they were living happily ever after. I turned the page and it went downhill because Moses died or Joshua died or David died. And with the death of each deliverer, bondage ruled once more. And the burden of religion became more and more severe and deliverers became more and more scarce. And eventually you you can't you can blame it on morale, you can blame it on the new generation, you can blame it on a lot of things, but eventually Israel and most of its people just gave up. And as time would pass, it didn't seem like God cared that much anyway. He had not spoken up or shown up in hundreds of years, and that's the backstory of Luke 1. The last the last of the people, the last of the people that heard from God was over 400 years ago. God promised a messenger who would bring his word once more. He promised a Messiah who would once and for all save the people. And God made it clear that if I don't, if I don't, it won't get better. But they had lived so long, if we don't, if we don't, and God said, no, 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 no. That's not how it's going to work in the new age. Y'all can't bear it. So I'm going to roll my sleeves up and do it for you. And this is how kind of God signs off the last verse of the Old Testament. And He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the lamb with a decree of utter destruction that if I don't do this, y'all can't fix yourself. You cannot save yourself. Please stop living in that world where you think that you can And I don't expect you to. The last word of the Old Testament is curse or destruction. It's one used often in the Old Testament that captured just what sin resulted in. Disaster. Nothing was salvageable. No ounce of redemption. Without the Messiah, the mess would only pile higher. Things would get worse under the weight of sin's curse. And we find in our text that there was a remnant of religious Jews who still kept going day after day to the well, holding out hope. And not to discredit them, they were doing what they knew to do. They were seeking God. Nobody else was. They were holding on to what little hope was left. They were doing all they knew. And yet, they were still getting nothing. Compared to those who weren't attending or coming to the temple, you'd say, well, at least they had hope. But as the Scripture says, hope that is deferred can make you more sick than no hope at all. And the hearts of believers were far past sick. They were numb. They continued to go through the motions despite how defeated they were. But maybe, maybe just one day, someday, God would return. And little did everyone know that day had finally come. And I can imagine when Luke was interviewing a very old Zachariah and Elizabeth, as they began to tell the story, I imagine them saying, we were doing everything we knew to do, but nothing was changing, except we were aging, and as always, nothing could stop death. So if God was going to change anything about our lives, about our future, about our destinies, it had to happen soon. But any hope of that actually happening was slim to none. It wasn't like God was picking on them. Nobody had seen, heard, or experienced anything from Him in so long. And even among the priesthood, expectations were waning. It was more of an anomaly that one still believed than not. That a priest would actually enter the temple expecting to hear something inside. But it says in verse 10, there was still a multitude of people that were praying, that were still holding on. Who knows, maybe their generation would be the one that could tell the story. We were the ones that were there when everything changed. But, to be honest... The, pres- the, 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 the worship in this day and age was more of a cultural thing than it was an actual committed thing. It was actually the pressure that made people still go to the temple. It was more social than spiritual. Speaking of spiritual, the temple hadn't seen anything spiritual in a long, long time. And the big reason why so many had given up hope, in the old days, the temple was this place of spectacle and wonder. It was pretty special. I mean, if you read the days of worshiping around the mountain and Sinai and the tabernacle in the temple, and I'll show you just a bit of those snapshots of those those time periods, I mean, the temple was a special place to be. People saw some amazing things, and it was as dead as a doornail in the days of Zechariah compared to what the ancients had seen. Just to show you about, uh, some tease of what it was like in the old days. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. So the presence of God was so powerful you couldn't even get in the building without falling over dead. So his spectacle and wonder and ooh and awe was a part of their vocabulary. It was a part of their worship. When Solomon built the temple, you'll remember this story. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped. I bet they did. Because when, when you saw that, you didn't have to be convinced that God was real and to be feared. Years would go by and the temple was abandoned and the old prophets took the message back to the mountains. You'll know the story of Elijah when he took to Mount Carmel and called upon God to return to Israel. Elijah begs God, Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that, they have, that you have turned their hearts back. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water. It's not supposed to work like that, right? Fire licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. I bet they did. Because they didn't need to be convinced otherwise. Now you read and you hear these things. You read these things. Fire and cloud and glory. It's all about the presence of God. The palpable and powerful presence of God. But here's the important thing. God's glory cloud was not present. was not a presence you could experience. It was only one that you could observe at a distance. There are stories of fire falling and all the ooze and odds, but it was always contained to the courtyard, to the, to the bottom of the mountain. It was always vicariously experienced through somebody that was holy and wrapped up and covered up. And even the priests only got a glimpse of it. They only got to feel so much of it because it was literally too much for you to handle. But you can imagine... Just knowing that was going on and just knowing you could show up in the parking lot and you could just see, right? Just knowing that would excite people and remind people of God's power and God's presence, right? People would drive for miles just to see the fire, to see the cloud, to see the smoke and know He is God. But know this. The presence of God left the temple when Israel failed to keep their part of the deal. You can go read Ezekiel. Literally, a chariot with angels on both in both seats shows up in the Spirit of God, leaves the temple, and they pick it up at the door. It's an awesome story, Ezekiel 10. They pick it up and they take off to heaven, and Ezekiel stands there weeping as he knows what that means that God's spirit had abandoned the house. And the place was destroyed. And years later, the this, the Jews came back into the land to rebuild, and they built the temple back. And God didn't jump, God God didn't return. And the prophet said, "He's going to come back. Don't worry. Don't don't stop believing just yet. He's going to come back." Haggai said this, or God spoke through Haggai. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth. I know you can't feel me like you used to. I know the house isn't what it used to be. And I know the fire and the cloud and the smoke and all that's gone. But just wait, what I'm doing next, woo-hoo, it is going to top that. He told the generation that returned from the exile that the next phase would be even better, even greater. Now buckle up for just a minute. We're going to see how God has fulfilled this promise. The temple's rebuilt, 400 years go by, and things are just not what they once were. This promise seems to go unfulfilled. And To add insult to injury, some pretty offensive things had happened over the last couple hundred years. And God was silent about it. And if God's Spirit had been in the house like He was in the old days, none of this stuff would have happened. And if God's Spirit was ever going to come back, it was during these things He should have and would have showed up. On 168 BC, Antiochus IV, a Greek ruler, showed up, was insulted by the Jews worshiping an invisible God. He took an idol of Zeus and laid it on the altar and sacrificed a pig in the holy place. And God didn't move a muscle. And the Jews thought for sure, sure, God is going to show up and strike that guy dead because he just defecated the altar. But Antiochus walked out alive and hundreds of Jews were killed. Hundred years later, Rome came in. Pompey the Great heard about how the Jews were so odd with their monotheistic faith. He raided the temple, he ripped the curtain in the holy place down, and he walked into the holy place and he blasphemed their God when they said, Oh, you'll die if you go in there. He walked in and walked out and said, ha, Your God is dead. Give up. And the Jews were convinced Our God is not with us, our God is not for us, He is not alive. And to add insult to injury, Rome didn't want Israel to cause any more trouble. So they placed over Israel a local politician, not a Jewish man by the way, named Herod the Great. Herod the Great wanted to get some goodwill with the people so he went to Israel and he said, hey, I want to be the greatest king you've ever had. And they said, Solomon's the greatest king. He built the temple. Nobody's ever going to be greater than Solomon. No place is ever going to be greater than his temple. So Herod said, I'll do you one better. I'm going to build over the house of Solomon that's left here. I'm going to spice it up, renovate it. I'm going to spend millions and it's going to be even greater. And I bet when when I plate this thing with gold and I make this thing look better than Solomon's, God's going to look down from heaven and think, well, I've got to go back there. How could I not fill that house? It's the perfect place for me to live. And the Jews said, deal. If it can get God back, we're in. And God looked down from heaven thinking, hum, hum, hum. almost perfect timing, Herod. But my plans are a little different than yours. And the question remained, but would God's Spirit return? because that's all they wanted. They wanted to feel and know and see that he was there. That they were his. Luke begins his epic story by reminding us that Herod was king. That this temple was his temple. And everyone thought everything was in place for God to return, but most of the priests doubted that that could ever actually or would actually happen. But suddenly, there in the holy place, everything changed, and expectations of what God was actually going to do in the future changed drastically. Look at Luke verse 11, First one, chapter one, verse 11. Then an angel appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him, because he didn't expect to actually see the angel in there. Nobody had seen anything for hundreds of years. And Zacharias saw him. He was afraid. The angel said, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John. John? It's not a family name. I can't name my son John. I've got to name him Zacharias because that's what we do. No, you'll name him John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall neither drink wine nor strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from His mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before Him in the spirit of the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. God was not done. Six months later, this same angel showed up to a young girl named Mary. And the angel said to Mary, you highly favored. Verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And listen to this. And can you imagine what it was like for her to hear this? Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Can you imagine her soaking all this in and, and parsing all this out? And then Mary said, how can this be? I mean, you could have stopped it. You'll bring forth a son. I mean, all the David and Jacob and all that stuff. That's overwhelming. But man, I'm not even married. I'm a virgin. 35. The Holy Spirit. There He is again. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One who is to be will be called the Son of God. I mean, who can believe? How can you imagine what that was like for her? Can you believe this? But three months later, Zechariah and Elizabeth had a little boy they called John. And nine months later, Mary would take refuge in a barn and wrap in swaddling clothes a baby named Jesus. And this wasn't done in a corner either. Shepherds told everyone what they saw that night. The legend of the no vacancy inn would be told forever and ever. And of course, Mary treasured all these things in her heart only to reveal them to Luke. Years later, John grew up and left the priesthood and began calling people away from the temple towards the Jordan River. And the scripture says in chapter three, they came with expectation as to what he had to say. And John said, I baptize you with water, but there comes one after me who is mightier than I, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, the fire of God. It's not going back in the temple, guys, it's going to go into your hearts. And then Jesus walked out of the wilderness and John said, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he baptized Jesus as a symbol of all our own baptism. And Jesus was overwhelmed by the Spirit of God, covered him, and he rose up out of the water and he began a ministry that set the world on fire. They preached that the Spirit wasn't coming back to fire up or fill up a temple. He was coming for humble souls and open hearts. And the key, the missing piece connecting us back to God was and still is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah of God. The Spirit didn't return to the temple or any temple. He returned in the Son, in the Messiah. And Luke says, take it from me. I didn't go to a building or a temple to find the Lord. The Spirit found me 2,000 miles away. Luke tells his audience of pagans and Jews who were tied down so boxed in so short sighted that God could only being the, the people that thought God could only be encountered in a certain place at a certain time Luke writes that God has taken his presence on commute and wherever you are however you are whoever you are whatever you've done if you're hearing this this is good news The Spirit has found you. And what happened in the Old Testament, it doesn't happen anymore. It's better than that. It's not temporary. It's not spectacle. It's internal. It's eternal. It's strength from God on high. And we don't wait and wonder like Zechariah did. We don't simply repeat a promise of what's to come like John did. Jesus is the answer. Luke shifts our attention away from a time and place experience to this timeless evidence. Our evidence is that these eyewitnesses speak through the ages that God changed the course of history. What once was done in dark, a back room in the holy place, has been broadened and mobilized, and Jesus' death and resurrection has put this on public display Fifty days after His resurrection, the Spirit of God fell on the church on its opening day. And the presence of Jesus has been filling hearts ever since. Hearts that trust in Him. Hearts that place their faith in what He did and who He is. The Word isn't just evidence. The Word is a means of encountering Jesus. The Spirit moves from these pages as they were inspired, they still inspire. And I know what you might be thinking. In the midst of all this evidence... Maybe the only unexplainable piece of the puzzle is the Spirit of God moving into your heart. Maybe that's the part that you just, didn't, you just don't get. Yeah, I'll believe something that happened 2,000 years ago, but if that, the, the idea that, that that can change me internally and make me a different person, you know, you stepped one place too far, Justin. You lost me. And that may be the only unexplainable piece of the puzzle, but it's an undeniable piece. Because I've got to ask you this. If Jesus did raise from the dead, if His Spirit is moving, what's so unbelievable about Him moving towards you? I mean, if He rose from the dead and His Spirit is alive and moving, what's so unbelievable that He might would move in your direction? If God loves you, if God can fill hearts, why is it so unbelievable to think that He can move into you? And I know it's not unbelievable to you because you can feel it. And there's something telling you, I've got to respond. Jesus is alive. His Spirit is present today surrounding you. And if you're a believer, you've received Him. You've been baptized in Him. You were saved, immersed into His life. And you can be renewed and filled by Him every day for guidance and direction for whatever you come across. And listen, God isn't a genie in a bottle at our bidding. He's a presence in our heart leading us to do His will to live a holy life as the sovereign creator would have us to do. Maybe your prayer today needs to be, God, surround me with your presence. If you're not a believer, if you've never been saved, or maybe you believe, but you just never had a, you've never had this personal, spiritual relationship with God, and you don't know if it's really for you. Pray, God, surround me with your presence. And if he really can do that, I believe you can go as far as say, God, fill me with your presence. Surround me. Fill me with your power. God's power will bring you courage, passion, and purpose. He'll take fear away. He'll make you bold and passionate. He'll direct you every day for His glory, for creation's good. It all began with an ordinary priest who encountered an angel who told him the first world-changing move was to have a baby named John doesn't seem a radical encounter, but as we know and as we'll find out even more, it was just the beginning. The door of heaven was wide open and anything is possible now. With eyes wide open, you can see it for yourself. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you today. I'm so thankful that you opened eyes and that you can fill hearts. God, if there's anybody in this house today that they, they believe in you and they've, they've been around this all their life, but this idea of the Spirit of God living in their hearts, that's just, that's, that's just too much for them. But God, they believe Jesus rose from the dead. They believe he's alive. They believe his Spirit is around us, God. And if, if, that, if they believe that, Lord, I don't think it's so unbelievable for them to take the next step. That you can enter their heart. That they can have a personal relationship with you. That their, their faith doesn't have to just be external and just doesn't have to be an experience at church, but they can take that next step. It can be a personal relationship, God. And God, maybe there's somebody that they, 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 they thought they were saved a long time ago, but they, it's never been personal, it's never been real. And they realize that, and they want that real thing. And God, help them to have the courage and help them not to be held back by what maybe they thought they had or what somebody told them they had. God, if anybody in this house does not have you as their Savior and your Spirit in their hearts, they need to know you before it's too late. So God, I pray that you would draw that person in. God, for the rest of us as believers, if your Spirit lives in us, God, I pray that we would have that desire to be filled and renewed and strengthened every day. God, thank you that you you didn't just stay in that holy place, but you went to people. And you're here for our people. And we just want to give you praise for that today, Jesus. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.